For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Future Projection Podcast. It has been a long time, uh, but I'm Carlos Galazzo, joined by Ben Badler, uh, and we are happy to finally crank up the podcast machine uh, and get back in your ears. Ben, how's it going, man? I'm doing great, Carlos. How you been? Uh, very busy. <laughs> With what? <laughs> oh, you know, just just running around and watching some games. But no, we do apologize for the delay. I think over the last two months, really, either myself or Ben or both of us have been on the road in some capacity or on vacation, taking a break after really what was like pr- probably the biggest grind I've ever had at BA just because of the new draft schedule. I mean, we talked about it a lot leading up to the draft and how it was going to be different and how kind of the window was, was compacted a little bit with, with the valuation time and, and just the events that scouts needed to see. I think we definitely felt that um, on the baseball America side, just in terms of covering everything that was going on. Um, but yeah, after the draft ended, it was basically straight out to Tampa, Florida for perfect game national. After that, USA baseball had their PDP league and I traveled down and saw some of that in carry then it was East Coast Pro in Alabama for a week. Um, and then after that, the area code games in San Diego, California, the first time uh, the event was in San Diego since I've been, I've been here at least. Uh, and then you got out to the underclass event that was uh, right after the main area code games. And you've also been running around to, to a number of other events as well. So just a very busy time. And I think I, I really don't love the fact that it's, it's so difficult to kind of figure out the draft, how it unfolds and kind of take stock of it. Cause you're just running on to the next events. It's, it's such a limited window to kind of just look back at the draft that we've been looking forward to for a full year. It, it almost feels like it happens and then boom, you don't even think much about it. Uh, but what have you been up to Ben? Yeah. Just running around doing, doing the same thing as you, but with some, some different events, like you said, area code underclass, USA Baseball has their 17U, 16U program in Cary, went out and saw them, saw some players in in this area up here in uh, uh, New England, seeing Thomas White, top pitcher for 2023, summer rivalry classic put on by, um, you know, Ray Fagnan and, and Matt Hyde, area scouts for the uh, Yankees and, and Red Sox and, and a whole bunch of other scouts working with them to put on a, a really good game uh, for the uh, summer rivalry classic uh, Kelly Rodman Memorial game they played up here the other day. Uh, a bunch of the top players in in the Northeast playing at Fenway Park. So, yeah, we've been traveling all, all around. Like you said, I think either every week, either you've been on the road seeing players or, or I've been on the road seeing players or or both at the same time. So we've never – had both of us just at at home to be able to record. Although the one we, we were together at PG National mm-hmm. right after the draft. But like again, just to give people like an idea, like 
So it's it's not like you know for like a minor league game, all right, like that'll that'll start at like seven o'clock at night. Probably get to the field maybe at like <laughs> three or four or something like that yeah. for BP and in and out. Hopefully, if they take it, but like these, especially the summer events, which is great that they do it like this because I love it mm-hmm. just to see as many players and get crank every minute full of baseball possible. But it's you know like area code games is you know game started at 8 a.m which means i got to get there at 7 a.m to make sure i get a good seat so it's mm. you know up at 5 45 in the morning get to the field by 7 game started at 8 a.m go until about 8 p.m at night yeah and then go back home or go back to the hotel repeat <laughs> for, for the for the next day so there's really no time for us to even for sure Record that. If we did record, I'm curious what the quality of that podcast would be because I felt like the entire time, especially after PG National, my brain was just mush because I mean, PG National has become kind of a cupcake event in the sense that you're in air conditioning the entire day. So I really feel like you're with it a lot more uh, than you are at all these other events. Like Hoover is notoriously bad for weather. Uh, although this year, I think we got pretty lucky. It was, it was really good weather there. Uh, but, but like you said, you're there from eight to eight, typically on average, I would say for all these events that I mentioned, you're pretty much at the, at the field all day. Um, and then in San Diego, it was funny. I think everyone showed up very early the first day, uh, just all the scouts to try and get seats because I think in long beach, it has been there enough that most people kind of, they almost have assigned seats. Like you will, you will recognize people sitting in seats that they've been in kind of every year. Um, and I think people kind of respect that, but in San Diego, it's a new ballpark. So all the scouts kind of want to get there early, mark their territory. But the nice thing with, with that event is after the first day, it almost seemed like everyone is just resigned to the fact that they were in those specific seats, the whole event. So you kind of notice that every day people start showing up later and later as they started getting a little bit more tired as the event were on. And I think the last day was certainly a getaway day for many scouts, but um, yeah, it's definitely a grind, probably the consistently the, the most intensive part of the calendar for myself, but also um, easily the most valuable on a like per minute or per hour basis, just the amount of players you get to put eyes on. And honestly, I talk about this a lot, but one of my favorite parts about the summer showcase circuit is just talking to all the scouts. I mean, catching up with people you haven't seen in a while. And and especially because of COVID with how much that limited, how much I was able to travel the past year uh, leading up to the summer showcase circuit, just seeing a lot of guys that you hadn't seen in a while, meeting new people that you maybe haven't talked to before that side of it and just listening to the scouts um, and learning more about the game. It it always happens every time I'm at these events. I feel like I just try and soak up as much information as possible from these guys. Um, And it's really fantastic and and definitely one of my my favorite parts about the job. Yeah. And we were, uh, I mean, we were even together actually at PG national, although we, we, we were together at PG National in Tampa, except that, and, and we were both staying at the Fairfield Inn, except you booked the, the, the other <laughs> Fairfield Inn. So we were both. Yeah, I really thought I was at yours. It would have made things a lot easier. <laughs> so we, we couldn't even record one together there. Not that we really had any time because, mm-hmm. like you said, it just takes up uh, all day. And l- luckily, I had the rental car and your 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 Fairfield Inn was on the way to the trop anyway so yes. it worked out 
worked out all right. Yeah, I think I think we need to dedicate this podcast to SoCal Steve, to be honest, because I ran into him. We we obviously uh were hanging out with him at PG National and I was sitting with him and Nathan Rohde, uh former BA uh member um at Area Code Games. And I think every single day Steve was just harassing me and you about not having a <laughs> podcast. He was really, really pissed <laughs> off at us for for the amount of slack we'd been doing in terms of the podcast. So we've got to dedicate this one to him. Um, we're coming back exclusively. So SoCal Steve has something to listen to as he runs around um, with his millions of cameras that he carries to every event. So we, sh- we should have just, you know, what we should have done is we should have just like lobbed like cryptic insults back and forth at each <laughs> other on social media. Like, like, especially on Twitter and pretended like we were in some big feud and that's why we were not yes podcasting just, been to nice. draw, just, just to draw more drama and and build up some more yeah. more attention that way although i, I think, think if we we're in the youtube space that sort of clickbaity uh drama baiting really really plays well i don't know how that works on the podcast side maybe we I'm should pretty sure our listeners would have seen right through that and been like we don't <laughs> care about any of this <laughs> just, <laughs> just tell me about baseball players yeah. please thank you Speaking of that, um, we, we've got a lot to talk about. Obviously, it's been several months since we've recorded. I mean, Kyle and JJ did a bit of a draft recap on the Baseball America podcast feed. I'm sure if you guys are listening to us, you're aware of that. Um, but did you want to touch on the draft at all? I mean, like I said, it, I, I think there are two complications with kind of draft analysis in general every year. One is just a scheduling issue of there's no time to really take an extensive look because you're running around to all these events we just talked about. But the other is, and and there are some players we can talk about that really highlight this, but it's really tough to give any sort of credible analysis of the draft right away. Like we can, we can look at our rankings and where we had players go and maybe we like a, a late round pick, but there are so many financial considerations that play into to where players specifically fall in the draft um there are a lot of there are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes in terms of just maybe agents um misidentifying where a player's range is that causes them to fall that's that's not really a talent issue um there are lots of medical things that, that we don't know about um maybe we find out after the fact like in the case of kamar rocker who is the top player to go unsigned this year we can talk about that um but also just none of us really know the winners of this draft and we're not going to know for, for many, many years. So trying to thread the needle of insightful analysis while also not just kind of making things up really. It's not like we're making things up, but just trying to say more than we actually really know has always been tough, but I guess what were your thoughts on the draft overall this year? Uh, I mean, the, like, you know, I, I thought, you know, like you said, not saying like who like the winners or losers were, but like the the team that if you know, I I I think has to be ecstatic coming out of it is is the Marlins, and that's you know you know in large part they drafted because, short hitters, so we knew that you were going to like right. their, their draft class. But but to pick in in the middle of the first round mm-hmm. and and get Khalil Watson, a shortstop from North Carolina, who like if. Th- if, if the Rangers had drafted Khalil Watson at number two, like, w- would you have been surprised by that, Carlos? I mean, no. if, if he just went in that top five no, yeah. range, not at all. 
So, so you're getting a, a player in the middle of the first round who could be a, a top five, even top two overall pick in the draft. I, I think that's outstanding. He's off to a really good start. And I realize that it's, it, this is also the dangerous time too, where you, you look at how draft picks are doing through their first, you know, you know, whatever they're playing now, seven, 14 games. Yeah. Most of these guys are between like the guys have started between like five and 20 games for the hitters and like yeah, 10 to 15 and, innings tops for some of the arms that I've seen and so I, far. And I, and I look at Khalil Watt. It's I've played like eight games. He's hitting 400 more walks than strikeouts. And I want to say, see, I'm right. But the reality is, you know, if, if, if the player is doing what you expected them to do, it's just, it's more evidence that you were right. But if, you know, if Khalil Watson was hitting, you know, a buck 50 with a bunch of strikeouts, I would just say, Oh, that's a small sample size. So we don't have to worry. Yeah. I mean, think about, just think about last year, how quickly the, or not last year, but a a few years ago when Bobby Wood Jr. and CJ Abrams were drafted, uh, we obviously had Witt ranked as the number two player in the class. I think Abrams was six, um, but it was, it was very definitively Bobby Witt was the top shortstop and CJ Abrams was the second shortstop in the class. And then CJ obviously goes off in rookie ball, Bobby Witt Jr., maybe a, a very mediocre um, season in a limited sample. And I, and I feel like the narrative, or not the narrative, but maybe how people viewed those players flipped fairly quickly after a small sample in a very low level, where to be honest, I feel like Abram's skill set, I mean, really plays well in that type of environment, more, more so than maybe any other player type, maybe maybe that's going too far um, in my thinking there, but, but I do feel like it is easy to move on from all of the information you had leading up to the draft. When you just kind of look at early performance and we need to be careful to, to not go too far in either extreme, I guess is the way I'd put it. Yeah. But, but just go back to Watson. I mean, I, I just thought that's just fantastic value to get a player like that who we immediately put into our top 100 in the middle of the first round off to a good start, just, you know, doing more homework on him even after the draft say it was, there's some, you know, some big red flag here. Why, why he was falling and scouts. I talked to said, no, this is ridiculous. <laughs> he should be going much, much higher. Yeah. I this. mean, and it, it isn't really surprising at this moment. Like it, I guess it is surprising that Khalil fell where he did. But if you look at some of the last, some of the recent drafts, the teams that have multiple picks who who are picking in the middle of the first and the Reds did this as well. They had two supplemental picks after the first round and they got a a player to fall in Matt McLean, who a little surprising that he fell that far. But when you have that money and you have so many teams up top in the top 10 who are looking to cut deals you're going to have a player fall. And as soon as that player starts slipping a little bit, their advisors are looking at the teams who have the extra picks and have the extra money. So from like a, a, a draft system point of view, it's not surprising. Uh, it is frustrating to me kind of watching the draft that, that a talent as good as Khalil does go where he goes. Because I think even after the draft, when we, we announced signings and all the underslot deals and the senior signs, there, there is a huge disconnect in, in the casual fans understanding of how the draft works because they're so used to the NFL draft system or the NBA draft system. And just intuitively 
you think if a player goes earlier, it's a better talent, but that's not always how it works in baseball, which has definitely become a, a larger point of frustration with me. But I think you're right. The Khalil Watson pick was a fantastic one. I think in, in kind of the night one analysis story I did for the draft, that was my favorite pick of the night. Uh, I think Ty Madden and then Jordan Wicks were, were two of my other ones right after that. But it was it was pretty easy to get really excited about the Khalil Watson pick for Miami. And then even beyond that, I think they have some interesting bats and interesting players. I don't know if you wanted to uh, go more into some of those other hitters that you might like, Ben, but yeah, I do agree that Miami has to feel pretty pretty excited about what they did in the draft this year. Yeah, I, I, I like them. And then I mean, we're just you know, talking some other guys off to really good starts. I mean, the, the Red Sox and Marcelo Meyer. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, and, and, and Meyer's played more than Watson. It, do, it kind of you know, it's, it's difficult this year. Luckily the, you know, the, the position players are going out and playing pitchers. I, I think a lot of them are just teams that are saying, why, why are we going to ramp these guys up just to, you know, shut them down again for, you know, a month later, especially after a lot of these guys have been pitching since, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, February or, mm-hmm. or even January, maybe. I so. even think from just a roster crunch standpoint, it's it's nice for teams to be able to not assign these pitchers to help sort through your your kind of cuts and your drops a little bit easier and give you some more time. Yeah, but you know, see seeing the start that Marcelo Meyer is is off to for the Red Sox is is really exciting. I'm I'm sure they were psyched to get him at the at the fourth overall pick. He, he's another guy where. I mean, geez, if, if he had gone number one overall, we would not have been surprised. Mm-hmm. If, I mean, I think he was there for a lot of a lot of mock drafts at, at one point. So um, certainly certainly a, a premier guy for them to be able to bring to the system. And, um, you know, you could say maybe it, it, not signing Judd Fabian dampens the, the class somewhat, but um, ultimately if, if Marcelo Meyer turns into uh, – you know, a Corey Seager type player. <laughs> that's 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 going to be the headline of the mm-hmm. draft class, and he just seems like a really a really complete player. I mean, I just remember seeing him when he was an underclassman when he was 16, and he was just so so smooth, so fluid, so easy, both at the plate, in the field, and it, it seems like he has a, a good sense of the strike zone. There's there's some power there. Um, it's not easy to hit. Home, you don't see a lot of teenagers hitting home runs in the what are we calling now the Florida complex league. So, uh, but Meyer is hitting for power there. He's he's getting on base. It's it's just a very polished, complete player with still more strength projection in his frame. Where it just seems like all the arrows are are pointing the right way for him. Yeah, 14 games so far. He's hitting 294, 410, 490, a pair of home runs, a pair of doubles, 10 walks, and 13 strikeouts. Uh, so definitely a solid start for him. Uh, one of the teams that I wanted to mention, which isn't really a surprise, is the Pirates. I mean, they picked number one. They had the largest bonus pool. Um, so you expect them with, with an extra pick in between the second and third round as well. You expect them to come away with a lot of talent. Um, and they did that. I was impressed. They got really you could make an argument they got four first round talents in this class with Henry Davis as the, the one, one, obviously. And then Anthony Salamento in the second round, Lonnie white in the supplemental second round. And then Bubba Chandler was the big overpay in the third round. Then obviously after that, 
um, much of their top 10 goes towards um, getting players who, who you're going to be able to sign to underslot deals to afford those top four players. But I think this, if, if you're going to do the underslot game, I like the way the Pirates did it. And, and what I mean by that is I like targeting I like targeting the best players you can get early on rather than underslotting, maybe playing the board a little bit straight and then near the back of the top 10 or the back of the top five, like the Orioles did last year, um, going for some, some preps who aren't to the caliber, at least that we saw Bubba Chandler. So I liked the fact that they packaged four really premium prospects after underslotting Davis and underslotting some guys later. Um, but I'm curious what you think about just that draft strategy in general. Um, and what do you think about some of these guys? Because I mean, when you, when you can walk away with four players who we ranked in the top 32 um, in your four picks at 137, 64 and 72, I feel like you have to be excited about that. And, and the pirates are obviously a team um, that's trending up in our farm system rankings. I think they're going to continue to do that. Um, but yeah, I really just like, like that draft class overall. I feel like they added a lot of impact talent. Um, yeah, it's and it's look, it's it's obviously easier to do also when you have the first pick in the draft. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so that obviously helps and, and tilts things heavily in their favor. If you are going to do it that way, I do like the collection of players they got. And I I got to see Lonnie White Jr. over over the spring and 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 I think he's you know, I, I like if Lonnie White Jr. you know on the back of the first round, it would not have it would not have looked out of place to me. I think he's really talented, and and I I think that collection of players is really good, and I I like Henry Davis. But if look if if Marcelo Meyer or Jack Leiter or you know you know like even a player like Jordan Lawler who I f- forget exactly where his bonus put him but um uh, i got it right here lighter was, was the, the top then it was jackson joe jordan lawler meyer and henry davis were the top five in terms of bonuses yeah so if you know if, if henry davis ends up being a you know a backup catcher in the big leagues or or just a you know solid catcher nothing above average for for the pirates and Leiter or Meyer or Lawler turn into, you know, a perennial all-star player, then yeah, that's, I think that's, that's what a lot of people are, are going to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying Henry Davis is not a good player. I mean, he certainly is a top five pick, um, but I, I, I would just take whoever, and, and I don't, I don't know, maybe the Pirates did have Henry Davis as mm-hmm. the best player on their board. I don't think that's, an outrageous claim. I, I, I don't think he is, but yeah. Um, you know, if, if Jack Leiter ends up winning a couple Cy Youngs or, or Marcelo Meyer turns into, uh, you know, a five-time all-star before he turns 30 years old, mm-hmm. which, which I could see happening, then I, I think that's what a lot of people are going to remember from that too. For sure. Yeah. I think it's worth pointing out too, just the fact that I mean, it's, it's hard to look at the just the signing bonus numbers and, and not think that that money played a role. That definitely is the case. But I think it's also fair to point out, too, that this year's draft class, we really never had a consensus top player. It always seemed to be like a pretty clear top tier of players that included Davis. Um, 
So if you do think the difference in these players is, is razor thin, it makes all the sense in the world to me, but we had lighter Lawler, Meyer Davis and rocker in that kind of locked in top five grouping. Um, but I don't think we ever felt confident in what the specific order was throughout the industry. And I would imagine if you ask every, every team, you're going to get wildly different orders and maybe a few other names included in that mix as well. Um, so I don't think you can really knock them. I think, even to just kind of the reaction um, on the draft broadcast from, from some of the guys, I think it's easy to convince ourselves that Meyer was somehow the consensus top player, just because everyone seemed to be putting him in that spot in mock drafts. And I, I just want to highlight how much the mock drafts are just littered with uncertainty. Even if everyone is putting Marcelo Meyer in the number one spot, it's more because that's almost the safest pick based on the information we have rather than, oh, we're all supremely confident that Meyer is going to be the top player uh, taken off the board. So I think it's just worth repeating that there really was a top group of five, around five players with a lot of uncertainty about who the clear cut top player was. And we won't really know for a few years who that player winds up being, but. Where were you at on uh, Brady house? Speaking of guys off to hot starts i mean <laughs> nationals <laughs> got him 11th overall pick yep uh, shortstop out of georgia maybe not a shortstop long term but um could not dream up a better start for him it's got three home runs in his first six games he's hitting he's hitting for power again all the yeah. small sample caveats apply yeah, he's only played six games, but it's been a pretty loud six games. And, and this house is actually one of the ones that I kind of kick myself over with mock draft stuff specifically, because right leading up until the draft, I'd heard that the Angels are going pitching heavy and was trying to find an arm to put there. I think we had, I had Brady House with the Angels. So in the case that I changed a pitcher and Bachman was one of the names I was considering, I was going to flip Brady House to 11. Um, but I just kept hearing there was no way he'd fill out of the top 10. So I think good value there for the Nationals. I mean, we had House in a similar range um, as Khalil Watson. I think we had them side by side just in terms of rankings. And, and both House and Watson were solidly in that kind of top eight group of players um, that most people had the same top eight uh, that we talked to. But I think I said on draft night when he was picked that, that you could make a really compelling case that Brady had the best offensive upside in the class just in terms of the power that he has now, the power you can project on him moving forward, his hitting ability and his track record as an underclassman. Um, I don't know how, how hard people hammered him for his summer. It wasn't the best summer um, prior to the draft, but it, it wasn't bad by any means. He swung and missed a little bit more, but I think the adjustments he made both mechanically and mentally just kind of show how polished and how advanced he is as a hitter. Um, I really like this pick for the Nationals. I think it fits them as an org. They, they seem to be a, an organization that really likes physically advanced players. If you look at a lot of their draft picks, especially their first round picks in recent years, they, they have a tendency to take big physical players who I feel like that department maybe feels more comfortable in running out high school players like that who are physical and can maybe handle the professional grind. Um, yeah, and I'm he, curious. He's, he's a man he's played, child. Yeah, he's played all of his games at shortstop so far. I do think he he's always been a player who wants to prove that he can play shortstop. And and there are now shortstop, everyday shortstops you can point to that have his sort of physicality and size. I wonder how much 
more weight he'll add to his frame as he continues to to grow and develop because he still is one of the younger players in the class. Um, so I imagine there's some more some more weight to come with his frame. But no, but I really like it. I mean, especially in a class that you don't have a lot of confidence in the college bats at the top. Mm. I really liked, and I was saying this a lot before the draft, I, I really liked all these high school hitters, just the upside they have, the profiles they give you. And even if he's not a shortstop, I think he's going to be a really good third baseman. Um, so yeah, I love the pick, love the performance so far. He's hitting 381, 480, 905 with three home runs, two doubles, four walks, five Ks. And again, it's just six games and it's rookie ball in the Florida Complex League, but it's it a good start. You were right. Yeah, it proves that I was basically everything I said. It just <laughs> proved that I was right. So, you know. But yeah, yeah like, like the pick. Um, are there any picks that you were a little surprised by in the opposite direction, maybe at the top of the draft? Or or maybe we just kind of pivot to Kumar here, the, the rocker situation, what you thought about that? Because obviously that quickly became, not quickly, once once the signing day signing deadline passed, that became kind of the story of the draft. Obviously, um, the Mets have had a lot of stuff going on in the news lately with uh, various thumb wars, but definitely the rocker situation was was fascinating and maybe disappointing. You never want to see that happen for a player. Uh, but what were your thoughts on Kamar Rocker not signing um, and how the Mets kind of went about their draft? Yeah, the situation just sucked. I mean, it's and 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 the issue too is is when you when a situation happens like what occurred with rocker in the Mets is you get like 24, 48 hours of coverage of people talking about it and the waters just get overrun with people reacting very yeah. emotionally uh, Hot take to, the, season. to the point of hysteric. I would call it hysterical sometimes mm. without being able to, you know, take a step back and really be thoughtful in our analysis of it. So, so I actually think it's good that we've had some, time to distance from the situation at this point to just take a, a more dispassionate look at what happened here. Because I mean, look for the Mets, they drafted Kumar rocker with a 10th overall pick. I'm sure they were thrilled at a time to get him. I thought it was a really good value to get rocker at 10th overall. This is the most accomplished or, or one of the most accomplished pitchers we've seen in recent years in college baseball. he, he had a dominant year. I mean, you, you can see projections where he's a mid-rotation or potentially a front-end starter at the major league level, and he's not too far away from being major league ready. So so they draft Rocker in good faith with the full intention to sign him, and then he comes in, takes his physical, and there is – at least the Mets seem to claim – you know, I don't know what the details are, but some issue that pops up in the process, what it is, I don't know, but that's the point where they decide, okay, we see something we don't like. So they weigh their options of, do we still sign Kumar Rocker or do we not sign him and instead take the 11th overall pick in the draft next year? Because Rocker you know, correct me if I'm wrong. He he did not submit to the pre-draft MRI yeah, so program. If he right? had, if he had submitted a pre-draft MRI, then the Mets would have been required to offer him at least forty percent of the slot value in order for them to receive that compensation pick for not signing him. 
Um, the fact that he didn't meant that the Mets didn't have to offer him anything uh, and they would still receive the 11th pick in the 2022 draft if they couldn't sign him. So that's kind of how that worked. Right. So, and I think the 40% number is still on the very light end anyway. And even if he had gone through that process, but we'll kind of table that for the moment. But so, you know, if, if the Mets based on their information of rocker, their assessment of his talent and whatever they saw in his physical, if they determine that the 11th overall pick in the draft next year, both, both, you know, whoever that player ends up being and the extra bonus pool space that they'll get, like we were just talking about with the Pirates, if they think that's more valuable than signing Kumar Rocker right now, then that's, that's an entirely rational decision for the Mets. Now, where I think there's fair criticism of the Mets is they should have taken a flyer with a late round pick as a backup plan in the event that they did not sign rocker, which obviously is what happened <laughs> because yeah. they went under slot on a bunch of their other picks. Yeah, so they, they went missed under out. slot yeah. on six of their top 10 round players and each of their players in rounds 11 through 20, they signed to 125 or less, which for those who, who just don't know off the top of your head, anything over 125 after the top 10 rounds um, goes towards your bonus pool. So you have to account for that, that overage. Right. So they missed out on the opportunity to use bonus pool money that could have been allocated to an overslot player in the 12th round or the 13th round. So, so that's a misstep for the Mets, but them not signing Kumar rocker is not some disaster to me. It's not some embarrassment for the franchise. I know it's easy to pick on the Mets and there are a lot of situations where it is merited, but I just, I don't see this as some colossal failure in terms of what the end result is for the organization. Now, Kumar rocker, he gets screwed over in this situation because he, he didn't choose to get drafted by the Mets, but that's who drafts him. So if he wants to sign and he wants to play professional baseball. The only team he can sign with now is the Mets. So we have this situation where the, the college player of the year, a player who, and again, I don't know what his injury is, but like we had cops as the college player of the year, but he was up there. Yeah. Or yeah. One of the best players in college baseball. I, I, I don't know what the injury is, but like, you know, let, let's say let's say he needs Tommy John surgery tomorrow, just just as an example. Mm-hmm. But you know, e- even if he needed TJ tomorrow, he'd still be a first round talent. I mean, Gunnar Hoagland was a college pitcher. TJ went what nineteenth overall to the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. I I'd still rather have Rocker over Hoagland. I mean, you could maybe debate that, but I think it's fair to say he'd still be a first round pick, even even with that on talent. And he wants to sign right now, and he's unable to sign. He's unable to start his professional career with a major league team just because the Mets changed their minds. And again, mm-hmm. I, I think the Mets drafted him in good faith mm-hmm. with the intention to sign him. It's not, you know, like if, if they didn't, you know, it's, let's say you had a, another scenario where a team said, hmm, you know, our, our revenues were – 
just shot so bad last year. We want to save some money or, or we think the 2022 class is going to be better for the draft. So we're going to draft a player and our plan is going in to not sign him. So we don't have to spend any money this year and get a pick next year in the draft. Like, yeah, that, that would be unethical, but I, I don't think that's what's mm-hmm. happening here. I think that's, that's fair to say, but what we do have is this extremely talented player who can't control what team drafts him mm-hmm. who wants to sign right now and, and is prevented from being able to start his career with a major league team because the Mets changed their minds about yeah. wanting to sign him after they drafted him. So, so Kumar rocker is getting completely screwed over mm. in this situation by, by the system that MLB has in place. that's extremely tilted in favor of the clubs and the owners mm-hmm. and, and leaves a player who has done nothing wrong with no recourse. And that for me is what's messed up that MLB mm-hmm. has this system in place where we have a player who again like also happens to probably be the most I was about to say famous not only most, is he super talented he's probably the most recognizable college player we've had in years and right when he was drafted that player going to the New York market was incredibly exciting to me yeah the most famous most marketable amateur player in the country wants to sign i mean he gets drafted he wants to sign he wants to start his career now and he is prevented from doing so. And that just sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really don't know what the solution is because I think from the team standpoint, like you said, they had every intention to sign Kamar. They draft him. All of a sudden you have new information that, that, that the team didn't have access to prior to the draft because of the medical situation. And I don't know what the solution is in, in a draft where players don't opt into the draft what the solution is for them for the medicals prior because i do think it makes sense for teams to have access to some medical information before the draft so we can avoid these situations altogether if every team had the medical information for kamar rocker he probably isn't going to go where where he was selected this year but like you said with with gunner hoagland he still went later in the first round a team drafted him where the maybe the risk assessment um was more palatable to to draft a player and sign him and I don't know what the solution is because we could just sit here and say, well, if Kamar went through the, the pre-draft MRI process, he would have gotten at least 40%. Um, and if he was offered that and really wanted to play, well, he could have done that. Um, but also, I don't know how you compel players to hand over medical information in a draft system where you have high school players who there's no reason for them to opt into a draft and hurt their leverage in the sense of, I mean, they, they don't have to opt in now. So if they get drafted and they don't like the money they're being offered, they can just go to college. So, so that kind of wrinkle in the draft process, really, it makes it tricky for me to figure out what is the best balance of making it a fair system for, for the players, obviously, because I do think you're right. This is very much tilted against them, especially the college players who just don't have this leverage. But at the same time, I do think teams deserve to know at some point the medical information for these players when they're spending millions and millions of dollars into your, one of your first points, I do think teams have a pretty good track record of making the right decisions when they are looking at this medical information um, and, and passing on players. If you, if you look at the recent track record of, of players who have not been signed because of medical issues that popped up after the fact um, and for a lot of asymptomatic issues as well, I mean, Brady Aiken comes to mind, Carter Stewart obviously happened with the Braves. 
Um, and now Brocker, I guess, is going to be lumped into similar conversations. It does seem like the teams have a pretty good idea what they're doing. Um, so I don't, I don't really know what the best solution is. Um, and I'm curious to see if, if and how much the draft system will change after the next CBA. Because, I mean, from my perspective, the MLB Players Association has not prioritized the draft at all. It, it's, it's almost been a case of them using the draft for, for leverage for more short-term um, and more benefits that are, that are helping, obviously, players who are immediately represented by the Players Association, not players who are going to be in four, five, six years. 100%, down the line. So 100%. it's this, a really tough situation and I don't, I don't have the answers. So I, I, I don't, I don't really know what the solution for this is or how you prevent it. I do. Let's hear it. Penn. Well, uh, well, I don't know if I do, <laughs> but I, 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 I was at least thinking about it and, and this is what I think. So the issue is, look, the, the Mets are behaving in accordance with the incentive structure that MLB has in place with its draft system. Right. Mm-hmm. They can just not sign Kumar Rocker, and they're going to be fine. Again, we, they should have drafted somebody later after the 11th round as a backup plan. Uh, but yeah, just really fine. quickly, yeah. I didn't touch on that, but I think that's a great point as well. I think that's the, the biggest criticism you can do. From, like from a strategical anal- like analysis of what the Mets did, they left either 800000 or almost like $1.3 if you want to assume like full overages on the table that they just didn't spend this year on draft talent by not taking, like you said, a backup flyer when very clearly by their top 10 round picks, their, their strategy was to overslot Kumar rocker. And that, that really was going to be like what, what their value of this draft came out of, but yeah. go on. So, so look, I, that aside, the Mets are going to be fine because they're going to get a pick in the same spot, right. In the draft in 2022. And again, I, like, I don't, we don't, I don't know what that, I don't know what happened in the physical, but let's assume the Mets are acting in good faith here and decided only during the physical process that something came up and they changed their minds about signing rocker at that point. So my proposal would be this. If, if a team drafts a player and then decides after doing a physical that it's no longer going to sign the player because of the physical, then that player should be free to sign with any of the other 29 MLB clubs for an amount up to the slot value of where he was picked. And that signing bonus would not be subject to the bonus pools. So, so the slot value of the 10th pick is, is what $4.7 million. So, so the Mets, the Mets take the player, something happens in the physical and the Mets say, uh, all right, we're, we're not going to sign this player due to an issue with a physical that we didn't know about when we drafted him. So, all right, the Mets get an equivalent pick in the 2022 draft. But, all right, well, now in the current situation, Rock, Rocker is, you know, he's stuck. But in here, now Rocker, he's not stuck in a dead end for the next year over a situation where he didn't do anything wrong. Because any team now, you know, the Mariners, Pirates, Orioles, whoever, can come in and offer Rocker up to $4.7 million, and it won't affect their bonus pool. So Rocker can get full slot value 
you know, assuming a club is willing to offer him that, which I strongly suspect many clubs would, especially hundred percent if it's exempt from the bonus pools, especially and, in a situation. And I'm getting like very specific here, but in, especially in a situation where Rocker fell to a pick that was significantly lower than the deal he was going to get if nothing happened. Like it was like $1.3 million less than what he was going to get around. Right. And, and, and again, so you could say, Hey, he could have gotten more than slot value. Well, okay, maybe, but like mm-hmm. this at least is, a, is also a lot better than the options <laughs> mm-hmm. that he had previously, like, which is what he has now. He still has the option to go back into the draft in 2022 in, you know, in, in under this scenario and, and from the, and he gets to start his career right away signing for slot value of where he was picked now from the Mets perspective like all right well they're not gonna get rocker either way right so what what do they care it's not like they're gonna get him in the 2022 draft I'm reasonably mm-hmm. certain of that um so what do they care right like you know maybe it hurts more if the Phillies or the Braves sign him but you know oh well like you drafted him and you chose not to sign him so then from MLB's perspective they avoid this just stupid situation where we have, again, one of the game's most exciting and most marketable players, young players on the planet is just going to sit out for a year rather than joining a major league team. It comes at a relatively small financial price and it doesn't disrupt their bonus pool system because it's limited to a special situation, right? Like, you know, like we said, the Red Sox drafted Judd Fabian in what was it the second round Second round, yep. yeah first they, so they can't come to an agreement with him because he just wants more money than the slot value or he wants more money over slot than what the red sox are offering so he says i'm not signing i'm going back to school at florida i'm gonna bet on myself that i'll you know have a good year and make more money in the draft in 2022 all right like you know kind of sucks but it's it's a different situation mm-hmm. than what rocker is going through. So to me, giving rocker the freedom to sign with another team for up to his slot value. I I think that's a reasonable solution that it doesn't penalize the Mets. It, and it opens the door for rocker to have the opportunity to start his, to start his career with a major league team with a signing bonus equivalent to the slot of where he was picked. And I, yeah, I, I know we all know the slot, the slots are, are well below the open market value for these players, but um, that is what it is. And, and it allows MLB not to damage the bonus pool system for, you know, that, that sweet, sweet cost containment mechanism <laughs> that, that the owners love to. That the ownership tweeted out in this case after the situation happened. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. was the tweet? Uh, like, I don't know. It was some outrageous tweet that Steve Cohen sent out shortly after this. It was just like, man, okay. The, the MLBPA just put that on the bulletin board for these negotiations. But um, no, honestly, the whole time you were talking, I was trying to think through like what loopholes or or negative situations from, from this example might be. And I really couldn't think of any, I think it's a pretty, pretty elegant solution that you've come up with. And I I like it a lot, Ben, you need to uh, get in the commissioner's ear on this one. The sure BPA, whoever's deciding. <laughs> we we have we have a lot of listeners in uh, in a lot of different places. We're finding out. We could just start. Yeah, we could just start a petition online to make this happen. Get it done. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that it happened. I'm curious to see what Kamar is going to do this year in preparation for the 2022 draft. 
Um, it doesn't seem like he's at Vanderbilt right now. Um, I know players in the past have gone the indie ball route. I know JJ will be thrilled if that happens. I think obviously if you do that, you probably have a lot more control over just how much you're pitching, uh, your workload, kind of manage all of that. But it'll be interesting you don't, to see you don't, what happens. You don't think he's you don't think he's going to go to the MLB draft league, Carlos? <laughs> I'm um, not sure. It was, Hey, it was year one, Ben. It was year one. Let's see what happens with the draft league in year two. I don't, I don't think, uh, I suspect, uh, I suspect uh, the Boris corporation is not going to have uh, Kumar rocker who just did not sign because of the uh, ridiculous rules in place because of the MLB draft system. <laughs> if, if he goes to the MLB draft league, it I, would be a, it would be a shocker for yeah. sure. Um, but let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about some um, underclass uh, rankings, what we've seen over the summer showcase circuit, maybe some farm system rankings um, and players who have a case as the best prospect in baseball right now, uh, in addition to getting to some of your questions. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a sec. And we're back. Thank you guys for sticking with us. Um, I wanted to bring up one player who is very interesting to me for a number of levels, for a number of reasons, um, and that is Nick York, Boston's first-round selection in the 2020 draft. And it was a pick that was heavily criticized from a lot of people at the time it was made, I think for probably not great reasons. Um, but I think the York pick and what he's done so far in pro ball, really his first stint getting out into pro ball since being drafted as a regular and he is hitting the cover off the ball right now he's hitting 329 417 520 uh, between low a and high a in the red sox organization with 12 home runs 17 doubles 44 walks to 56 strikeouts um and number one just what a what an impressive performance i think he's a guy who if he's not already on our top 100 i think he's solidly in the conversation to get on that list yeah we just um, snuck him in the back of the top 100 now nice he's, he he's definitely a candidate to keep moving up he's not doing anything to <laughs> go the other way that's for mm -hmm. sure yeah but i wanted to just bring that up I, I think york is a pretty great example of how it is very difficult or impossible to really analyze picks right after they happen. And I think in most situations, when there's a player taken, that's a surprise to all of us who are kind of outside of the industry looking in, I feel like it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity for us to kind of think, what are we missing on this player uh, as opposed to what did this team just get wrong? Because I think in, in almost every single instance, these, these teams have more information than all of us who are kind of on the outside trying to analyze all this stuff and evaluate it. Um, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on just the, the re reaction to this pick when it happened, um, how we're able to evaluate draft picks, uh, how long we need to give players time for, because I remember the night of the York pick was kind of sending everyone into a fury. I don't know if Red Sox fans were disappointed or excited about it or just kind of confused, but I remember, I, I think in the first line of our scouting report at the time, we had written that evaluators some evaluators thought york was the best pure hitter on the west coast um and that would put him over some players who we had in the top and in, in, in the first round in our rankings so it didn't seem as crazy to me just just kind of understanding a little bit with like how quickly number one how quickly consensus falls apart in a baseball draft and two just the dynamic of boston's draft that year where they didn't have a second round pick 
Um, if they don't take York in the first, he might not get back to them with their third pick. And if they really like him and are on the higher end of the evaluations that really buy into his bat, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you look at how they underslotted him and uh, got blazed later and spent some money in previous rounds, just kind of maneuvering their money a little bit. It made a lot of sense even at the time. And I think the Red Sox uh, officials who made that decision are probably feeling pretty good about themselves right now with just, just with how he's performed so far. Well, one, I, I like that. He's just blaze for, you now. he, do, he doesn't even need blaze Jordan <laughs> there. Their yeah, third, you know, he's, he's, third he's third exceptionally pick famous. Yeah, third yeah. So I, and who's also off to a very, very good start himself. So yeah. And, and, and you know, the other thing you didn't mention is, you know, that was the year where there was pretty much no high school baseball. Yeah. To see. So that was pretty big. Also a little bit of a factor. <laughs> yeah. Pretty big factor in adding to the uncertainty of it. So, yeah, I mean, one big credit to the Red Sox scouting department for, you know, identifying and, you know, having the, you know, the guts to take York there and not worry about what people were going to say about the pick. It obviously did a outstanding job in terms of their evaluation on, on Nick York. And I, I agree. And I think, I, I think teams have gotten, better now at identifying and, and, you know, putting a, you know, more, more appropriately valuing the best high school hitters in the class, which, you know, 10, 15 years ago was probably harder to do. Um, Now I, I think you're seeing these guys go up uh, and, and you, you have a lot more history on these players uh, you have a lot more history on these players with wood bats and facing good competition. Like, you know, maybe yep. they're not seeing guys who are pit, you know, 90, 94 every day, but you're seeing them. You just have more history with these guys going up against good pitching. I mean, you know, like Elijah green and Tamar John, like these guys, you can have like hundreds and hundreds of at bats on, on, on these guys for 2022. And, and obviously mm-hmm. you know, the, premier players in the class but even going further down like a guy like nick york who like if you, if you just grade out his tools he's not that fast his arm is not that strong it's not like he has crazy power but he's a really good hitter he has a good swing he has a really good idea of the strike zone the kind of guy where the more you see him play the more you appreciate how good and how talented of a hitter he is but it's hard to feel super confident in that unless you're seeing him a lot and you're seeing him, you know, against good competition a lot. So I think, I think the industry as a whole is getting better at evaluating players and, and valuing players with, with that shape of, of a profile. So I give a lot of credit to, to the Red Sox for, for making that pick. Cause he looks, he looks great. I mean, he, and it's, it, it even, you know, again, all the uncertainties of what went into evaluating uh, all players, especially high school, uh, you know, players last spring. We, you know, we've talked about mm-hmm. so much, but it it seems like when he got to, you know, when he got to the the alternate site, got good reviews out of there. 
instructional league. Obviously, more people are 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 getting eyes on him from other organizations, and he seemed like he was one of the better, just one of the better young hitters around at instructional league last year. But again, small smaller sample size, very unusual scenario and, and situation that he's he was hitting in there, and it's not like he got off to like a scorching hot start this year, but. Uh, you, you know, you can just see over time the more the the more he's played, the, the just the, it seems like the better the better he looks, and and the more confidence you can have that yeah, like this is this is a really good hitter, yeah. And and the traits that he has as a hitter are going to continue to play at higher levels. Yeah, West Coast second baseman in the Red Sox is a pretty good combination of the last few years. So see if they can keep that up. Um, Wanted to also talk about some of the players that we've we've started seeing this summer, Ben, and maybe pivot this conversation forward, unless there are any other players um, from the 2021 class that you want to mention. We have a question, I think, that'll get into some of the players from this year's class that are performing well that we can table for for the mailbag segment. But wanted to talk about some of the guys who have impressed you this summer um, with the 2022 and 2023 classes. I don't know if there's any players in the 2024 class that you've seen that you wanted to talk through, but um, wanted to really start looking ahead towards next year's class and next year's classes, I guess, now that you are solidly focusing on the underclass stuff for us, which is fantastic. By the way, if you guys have not been following Ben's work um, at the site and on Instagram, you, you're going to be able to get a, a much better feel for all of these players than, than even I have at this point. So definitely go check out that work, but I'll just kick it off to you, Ben. What do you want to to dive into first 2023 2022 any guys in the next year's class that really excite you well in in 2022 it i mean tell me if i'm wrong but it, it just the arms in mm-hmm. the class like it just seems like there's just this array of pitchers and i'm not i mean high school pitching is obviously especially mm-hmm. right-handed pitching is, is super super risky group but it's it was pretty fun to watch a lot of these arms so far this summer. Yeah, it seems like it's an it's a cornucopia of arms at this point, and it seems like the strongest high school pitching class, at least since 2018, which the 2018 class is, was always like really heavily praised, and that was obviously Kumar Rocker's draft year out of high school, uh, in addition to a number of players who went to college and were drafted. Um, but yeah, the the depth the amount of players who are already ranked in our top 10, the left-handed pitching talent in this class. And, and, and even outside of the top players, the number of pitchers in this 2022 class who are immensely projectable and have very big, still lean frames that it wouldn't be surprising at all to see a number of these players take massive jumps over the off season is impressive. I don't, I would have to try and dig through the numbers to see how the, the average height of the top, I don't know, 50 pitchers in this year's class compared to previous classes. But I would guess it's one of the taller groups. Um, but just looking at some of the top pitchers, I mean, Dylan Lesko is currently our top ranked pitcher overall. He's the top ranked right-hander. And his, if you look at his performance in high school and travel ball, going back to like his freshman year, whenever the first year that he converted from catching and really started focusing on pitching, is unbelievable. I mean, the, the amount of strikeouts to walks, his control, just limiting runs, his performances is, is just crazy 
to look at and to see in addition to the pure stuff. I mean, it's got a three pitch mix with a fastball slider and a changeup that all flash plus at times. I mean, the changeup looks like a now out pitch, one of the better changeups I've seen, probably one of the better changeups in this class. Um, him and Brock Porter both have really fantastic changeups. Uh, Brock Porter is right-hander out of Michigan. Dylan Lesko is out of Georgia. Uh, I think in general, Georgia this year is just strong overall on the high school side as it, as it typically is, but especially this year up top. And, and then getting into guys like uh, the kind of top left-handed pitching group of Jackson Ferris, uh, the North Carolina lefty who is going to IMG Academy and will be seen plenty frequently along with Elijah Green and a number of other talented players they have there. Uh, Brandon Barrera, Noah Schultz, and Tristan Smith as the other full, uh, the other three left-handed pitchers that it seems to be at this point kind of the top group of arms. All of these players we have ranked in the top 10, so I do think you're right that this year's class stands out for its pitching, and I think you could probably, at this point especially, have a number of different orders with how you line up all these players, but it's pretty impressive. The impact pitching talent up top and just the depth. There are so many arms we go through at, that excite me at this point, but yeah, it's it's been pretty fun to watch. Yeah, and we like you know, and Nas Mule, who's still 16 years old and threw 100, 100 miles an hour yeah. at the PG All America game, which I've never, I mean, I've never seen an American 16 year old at throwing a hundred, which is, I you know. I've, I've heard of some kids in, in Latin America doing it very rare exceptions. Like I think like Luis Medina with the Yankees did it, but uh, a couple other guys here or there, but um, yeah, it's, it's, and he's a two way guy. I think his future is probably just on the mound. I mean, cause he just has such incredible, <laughs> incredible arm strength and, and a really good, good athlete too. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you just, I mean, him down. And, and Cutter Coffee are both two-way guys who I think have probably focused more on hitting than pitching to this point, but I think probably their pro futures definitely lie on the mound, or at least their upside seems pretty significant on the mound. And like you said with, with Nazir, his upside is like just the stuff that he throws. Like he's, he's throwing – he touched 98 in two of the three outings that I saw him, I believe, this summer. Like you said, he touched 100 at the PG Classic – he throws a slider and a changeup in the mid eighties and both those pitches flash. They're not consistent right now, but I mean, just talking about a guy who has that kind of pure stuff in his arm at that age while not focusing on pitching is pretty scary to think about. Yeah. But, but you mentioned Dylan Lesko. So he, he right now is the number one high school pitching prospect in the mm-hmm. 2022 class. Obviously Jackson Job was the number one guy, maybe not at this point last year, but certainly going. At this point, into it would have been draft. painter, but he was certainly up near the. I would right. say he was probably in like that second tier. Yeah, but but you know, or maybe painter is a good one to compare to also. But you know, I'm thinking of Job, who who was our number one high school pitcher going to the draft this year, went third overall. Does I mean is, is Lesko a similar guy to him, or, or does he have a, a chance to? to go i mean it depends on how the draft order lines up and all that stuff but i mean does he belong in in that category yeah i mean i think so if if you just compare job to where he was at um compared to lesko where he's at now i mean lesko is ahead of where job was so if we're going on under that assumption and, and knowing 
these all these players can take a step forward. Uh, there's no reason why Lesko couldn't go in a similar range. Again, a lot of that's probably just going to depend on how the class shapes up. And it does seem like the college class has a lot more hitters at the top. That'll maybe make that tougher for a high school pitcher to go that high. Um, but just on talent alone and with Lesko's performance, I don't, I don't see any reason why we'd, ha- we'd say uh, that he's not capable of doing that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other guy who, uh, I hate that I'm going to say stands out because he's six foot nine, like <laughs> stands out for me, like Noah Schultz. He's just, he's just so fast. Like he's a six foot nine left-handed pitcher from Illinois committed to Vanderbilt, like about half of our. <laughs> yeah. Like all the kids players. in the top 10 are committed to Vanderbilt. So it's, they're uh, either going to be really good or they're not going to get a, a prospect to get to campus. Yeah. Probably some combination of, of the two with the, with the depth of that class but no i mean he's not even i mean there there are guys who throw harder than him it's it's not like he's throwing 97 98 like some of these other kids but it's just that tough like i'm not saying he's randy johnson but it's like that kind of angle and almost hair too and height and size from from the left side with with a really good breaking ball too that's um kind of looks like a curveball. He calls it a slider or whatever it is. I just think it's a good pitch. <laughs> it's 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 just a really uncomfortable at bat for lefties. And I think he's he's got a chance to th- he he's not a flamethrower right now, but he has a chance to throw harder, really good spin traits on on his stuff too. Another top ten guy in the class where man, he's he's just fascinating to me with the combination of the the presence stuff with that feel for spin on on everything he throws and and the and the projection on just how much his, he, his future projection uh, so to speak it's quite yes. impressive but no what really impressed me with schultz too in addition to everything you just said is it his body control and his ability to repeat it, it's very common with high school players i feel like when they're that tall and lanky that they struggle to kind of sync up all those moving parts but it really seems like he does that with ease and then watching him come off the mound to field his position. He seems like a really good athlete. And I'm curious to see how the body develops because he's listed at 220, uh, I think right now, and he doesn't look 220 physically. I mean, obviously that height gives it to him, but he's still fairly lanky and has a lot of room to fill out. Like you said, he's kind of topping out in the low nineties at this point, but it's a high spin fastball, high spin breaking ball, tough angle. And I only imagine he's going to continue to throw harder. Um, So, yeah, I think, He's got pretty pretty exciting upside at this yeah. point. But the I mean the the big one we should talk about is who we have at, at number one, or maybe who we don't have. Yeah, I at think the one. I think the number one versus number two conversation right now on the high school side is fascinating. And I spent probably every other day that I was at a field asking different people who they had at the top of the class. And I, I don't want to sound like a, a broken record here, but I do think it's a case of kind of just depending on who you ask, uh, you, you could get a different answer. I don't think there's a consensus top guy in the high school class right now. Maybe maybe it's developing, um, but right now we have Tamar Johnson, number one, in our recent update, he overtook uh, IMG Academy outfielder Elijah Green, who probably was the most famous kid in this class coming into the year, just with some of the the events he had as an underclassman with a very prominent team um, that had a number of notable 2021 prospects, but 
it's not like Jamar Johnson is some nobody either. He's been playing with USA baseball for years. Um, he's always been a performer for that team, a catalyst at the top of the lineup. Um, and I think I can say this pretty confidently. Tamar Johnson is the best, pure, the most advanced high school hitter that I've seen ever. Like, I, I, I'm again, this is me going back to 2017. I, I've never seen a hitter that's more advanced than Tamar, just in terms of his approach at the plate, his bat-to-ball skills, ability to make adjustments within at-bats, his bat speed, his, his current power now, it, it seems every event he was at, he was the best hitter on the field. And it was pretty easy to say that. I mean, he has no problems turning on a ball and hitting a missile over the right field fence. He has no problem slapping the ball the other way, uh, driving it through the five, six hole, the other side. It, it always seems like he's in control of every single at bat he's in. Um, he will take big hacks when he's ahead in the count. He knows when he needs to shorten up. It's it's just pretty impressive. The pitch recognition, the the adjustability, the bat to ball, like everything was just incredible for me this summer in my looks. And and maybe that's the best he's ever played, but it, it seems like from everyone I've talked to, that's just kind of the hitter that he is. Um, and so that's why we have him in the number one spot right now. Talk to a lot of scouts who think he is the number one guy, but it's also going to be fun to follow throughout the process because as JJ wrote about after we released our updated rankings, tomorrow's a very unusual top of the class prospect. Um, I think it's becoming more common for teams to feel okay with taking shorter players, especially hitters. Um, but he's probably a second baseman. He's probably five foot eight, 175 pounds or so. Um, maxed out physically um so it's not a typical top of the class profile for a high school player but i just feel like the confidence you can have in his hitting ability is just kind of i mean he he has the tools that matter and he has performed at an exceptionally high level yeah he it it really does remind me of seeing wander franco when he signed with the rays because it's I mean, they're both, it, it's a, it's a similar body type to Franco. I mean, you mentioned he's five, eight, like thicker, lower half type type guy. I mean, that's very similar to Franco. Uh, Franco's not that, you know, Franco's maybe five, nine, right? Like it's, and, and they're both, you know, Johnson is a left-handed hitter only. Franco's obviously a switch hitter, uh, but they're both very, very hitterish guys with just outstanding bat speed i mean that always stood out to me watching franco before he signed with the rays coming out of the dominican republic it definitely jumps out if you watch termar johnson swing the bat um and and they're both you know they're guys who have power like they have big power but they're they're just good hitters first like like you said like you see good back control from termar johnson like yeah he will take some big hacks sometimes when he's ahead in the count or, or at a showcase sometimes but just a very smart polished mature hitter and he, he just dom he just dominates everywhere he goes it seems like he, he's just a a baseball rat like it's fun to see guys like 
him or, or Cam Collier, who, you know, another Georgia kid who reclassified from 2023 into the 22 class, like, like, like uh, these guys must take like six, 700 at bats or something like that in, in a year. Um, and, and it shows in just how polished both of them are as, as hitters. And, and with, you know, Johnson and just, like I said, baseball rats, super high baseball IQ, just, just like Franco was. And, and also similarly, you know, questions about, is he going to stay at shortstop? I'm not, I, I think with him, it's just more about, you know, people looking at his body and like, what, you know, what's his future range going to be kind of like Franco was at, at the same age and you know Franco's still able to you know to handle shortstop now so we'll see I mean Johnson has good hands he's he's smart he's, I think he has great hands I mean he, he turns to double plays because anyone in the class that I've seen so far yeah so and, and he's really you know he's really smart really instinctive player again baseball rad like he's gonna get the most out of his his ability so so we'll see but you know either you know, shortstop, second base, you know, maybe third base. I, I don't know, like, like Franco or like, you know, Jose Ramirez, maybe that kind of positional profile, but where they just, you know, they hit and, and they hit, I, I, Johnson's going to hit for power too. I mean, that's the thing is, I mean, you, you say, you know, he's unusual. It's an unusual profile maybe for somebody who could potentially be the number one overall pick because he's five foot eight, mm-hmm. really. I mean, you know, I know he's listed at five foot ten, but um, <laughs> was, oh, a lot of these kids are uh, listed at heights that maybe. An inch yeah, part of what I need to do over generous. the next few weeks is is go through. I think uh, East Coast Pro um, measured all these kids, so I think I can actually get updated height and weight that we need to plug in for all these high school kids on our list. Um, yeah, so some of them may have shrunk from, uh, <laughs> from absolutely from that. But I mean, so yeah, the but, power jumped. I did. I did not like knowing Termar and seeing him a few times as an underclassman. The power really jumped out to me as something that I did not know he had to the level that he does right now. I mean, he showed some of the best raw power at PG National of all the hitters, right? Would you say that's fair? And, absolutely, I would say. And like the had, ability to access it in game has to be near the top of the class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he had a home run at, at PG National. He had the best. I would say Dominic Hellman had the mm-hmm. best raw power of anybody there. Dominic Hellman is also six foot six. Yeah. Just the gap between <laughs> Dominic and Tamar's ability to hit in game is, is fairly massive. So like, at least at this point in time, like, yeah, that was, that was very surprising to me because I thought he was going to be more of a, <laughs> I guess coming into the year, I thought he was going to be more of like a gap to gap, really hitterish guy, top of the lineup player, but the impact is, man, it's, like we say he's maxed out and the tool sets aren't that loud, but like how much more power do you need on a, a guy who's this good of a hitter to be an impactful bat in a oh, lineup? Yeah. I don't, he, I don't know that you need any more. He has, he has incredible bat speed. I mean, the swing is conducive for him hitting for power, both in terms of the swing path, like the, the contact frequency and, and being able to hit, you know, hit the ball in the air and, and swing at good pitches. Uh, he's just a, such a smart hitter too. So, I, I mean, really, if he's five, like nor, normally, like what, what would be the criticism of a, you know, a player who is five foot seven or, or five foot eight, it would be what, how, you know, how much, how much strength is, is this guy going to have, right? How much power is he going to have? Like, you know, like a Nick Madrigal 
something like that where you know you're going to have to have pretty outstanding back control to have uh, you know value at the major league level if, if you're not going to have much power, which you know Madrigal does, but um, but that's that just doesn't apply to Tamar Johnson. I mean, like we said, he I thought he had the best left-handed one of the best left-handed raw power in this class. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't see him being five foot eight as as any disadvantage for him when he hits the ball like he's six foot three. Yep. Absolutely. And oh. and he's and again he like he's it, it's it's unusual, but you know, I don't know, Wander Franco is probably five eight, five nine, and he was the number one prospect in the international class when he signed and was in our top one hundred right away, which I was told we were crazy to do, but looks all right. Right now he's you know, was the number one prospect in baseball and looks uh looks like he's doing all right for, for Tampa Bay right now. So um, you know, I don't know that Tamar is going to have that kind of bad control. Cause I don't know that anybody <laughs> outside of maybe Madrigal is going to have a uh, Wander Franco level back control, but I just don't see him being five foot eight or, you know, five ten if what he's listed at, whatever, whatever you want to call him. I just don't see that as any kind of a, a negative mm-hmm. for him when he has, <laughs> you know, our, our among the best raw power in in this class yeah and i think you've seen in recent years more players who are undersized going in the top half of the first round sal frillick and madrigal like you mentioned are two guys and i was talking with matt eddie recently and he had said that the average height for big league regulars has actually gone down in recent years and i think that's just because there are a number of shorter players who are hitting at a very high level um so it's not like it's not like teams are terrified to take players like this. I think they're only becoming more, more open to taking players who don't, who don't look like the, maybe the classic top prospect that you have, like the picture you have in your head. Um, and like you've said previously, there are a lot of advantages for, for hitters being shorter. Um, and I'm sure tomorrow has a lot of those as well, but um, wanted to briefly touch on Elijah green as well, because he yeah. is in the conversation what? Why do you hate Elijah Green so much? <laughs> no, definitely don't hate Elijah Green. Um, I mean, he he is probably the, the player you look at and you can immediately just see the tools and you can see the impact and you can see him flash just very, very silly tools that you're like, okay, like I, I clearly get it. Like if you've never seen either of these players before, um, you, you've never seen a game, you probably come away like Elijah Green, that's the guy in the class, right? Whereas Tamar just kind of performs and performs and performs. Elijah is six foot three, 225 pounds, immensely physical, as you would expect for a player who's, whose father played in the NFL for 10 years, has impressive raw power, has really impressive speed, uh, good defensive tools, athleticism in center field. Another guy that has a track record of hitting as an underclassman. Um, I think he has a sound approach at the plate as well. I don't know if anyone's going to have an approach as good as Tamar. Um, but he tracks pitches well. He has a good understanding of the strike zone. Um, maybe just more swing and miss, I think, is going to be the concern with Elijah. How much is he going to get to? He swung through a number of pitches that you probably would expect a top-of-the-class player to get to. But again, you could have said the same thing for Brady House last year. Sometimes players uh, just make adjustments. Sometimes they're pressing too much. And I also think it's fair to say that Elijah Green maybe got pitched backwards um, more than any hitter that I saw 
over the summer showcase circuit. When he steps into the box, you can definitely tell pitchers. Um, I think they know who he is. They know who he is. The, the <laughs> yeah. velocities tick up. It was very common for a pitcher to touch his highest velocity when Elijah was in the box. Um, he gets a lot of breaking stuff first pitch, but I think he really, I think he sees that stuff. Well, um, it's just a question of, of swing and miss is, is probably the one question you can have with him. And again, I think if, if you have, if you get nitpicky with profiles at the top, I do think the industry has shown a little bit of a bias against right, right outfielders. Now, maybe that's just a case, uh, with, with corner outfielders at the high school level, um, you could feel very comfortable. I think at this point that Elijah can play center field just fine. It's another question where I, where I wonder how teams will project that in the future. He definitely looks like a guy who would probably fit better in a corner where he'd be a really good defender. Um, Cause I imagine he's going to continue to get bigger, but he is incredibly fast. He showed really impressive defensive actions in center field area code games. Um, so that's an interesting one. I think in terms of upside, no question that maybe not no question, I guess, depending on what you think about, Tomorrow's hitting ability, but I, I do think you can make a case that Elijah Green has some of the best, the best upside in the class, just in terms of tool set um, and what he's done with the bat previously. Yeah, I, I mean, I love, I love Tamar. I agree with you. I think he should get a slight edge over Elijah Green right now because of some of that swing and miss risk that comes with Elijah's game, but it. I think I mentioned this on the first podcast too, but watching him reminds me of just seeing, seeing Luis Robert when he was at that age, just this ultra physical and athletic man child of a, of a player in the outfield who had great tools. I, I mean, I would say Elijah runs better even than Luis Robert did. At the same age, I think Luis Robert got faster as, even as he got older and, and after he left Cuba. But Luis Robert also also always just dominated both his his age group and he would play like a year or two up when he was in the Cuban Junior Leagues and always hit really well. But also would show you times where he would swing and miss at like I don't know, like 70 ish mile an hour fastballs, or you'd be like, how, what are you, how are you swinging through that dude? Like you're, <laughs> you're such a good player. What are you, what are you doing? And that there was some, you know, you could still see that risk with Luis Robert coming up through the minor leagues, but also performed really well and just had outstanding tools and athleticism and physicality. And, and you see that with Elijah green too, where it's, you know, a potential, center fielder with power with speed with a good arm uh i i think you know j again seeing his seeing his bloodlines you know dad played in the nfl like he is big but it's like it's a different kind of big it's not like uh i i don't see him ever getting fat by any means i don't know if he could if he if he tried like it's it's that just kind of uh athletic body type that that he has and, and, and works to, to maintain. So uh, I, I think he can stay in, in center field and, and be that power speed guy where there, there is some swing and miss risk. It's he's not, he's not Termar as a pure, pure hitter, uh, but just the tools and athleticism that he has. And, and I mean, there's performance 
there too. I mean, like last summer was, you know, incredible. And, and yep. this, you know, this summer, I mean, I saw just, you know, just a video of him, you know, playing for that, uh, uh, like that FTB, you know, Phillies team where he just, I don't even think he took a stride. <laughs> he just like flicked his wrists and hit a baseball to like the top of the trees. It was pretty he had, crazy. <laughs> he had one home run at, at area codes. He got a breaking ball that hung up over the middle of the plate and hit it into the middle of the batter's eye in straight center field. That was one of the more impressive homers we've seen. And in San Diego did play pretty hitter friendly, especially compared to Long Beach. Um, but yeah, that was just an impressive flash of, of what he's able to do with the baseball when he can barrel it up. Yes. I mean, these are, and obviously there's college players in this draft too, but I mean, I could see college. I could see either of these guys going, going with the number one overall pick next year. Yeah. It'll be really curious. It'll be interesting to see kind of how, how the battle at the top uh, goes at this point. Cause I do think it, it is worth just reiterating. This is kind of the first step in the process for us, especially um, with this not being the, the first high school class that you focus on maybe maybe it'll be different next year where we have a lot more history with these players you're seeing in the 2023 class where maybe we'll have more confidence um in in who we line up at the top but i do think it's a case where either player has a case for it i've heard people throw out drew jones who we haven't really talked about that might be a player who can uh factor at the very top of this group as well uh we haven't ranked four right now but you know the class looks solid at this point it's not the shortstop uh, group that we saw last year, but no draft class is, is really that good at shortstop. Um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of powerful bats in this class, a lot of arms. Uh, so it should be fun. But um, since we were having a debate over who the top, not a debate, just kind of a discussion over the top players in the high school class, I wanted to pivot to some minor league prospects. It's been a lot of, of overhaul and turnover and graduations and players performing and players disappointing players getting hurt at the minor league level. Now that we finally have a full uh, season of minor league baseball, who right now is the best prospect in baseball, Ben? I feel like there are our top three. Who do we have at, at this point? I actually need to pull it up, but I feel like it's an interesting conversation to have. There are three guys who, who probably have a pretty strong case might have entering the year, maybe, one of these players, I was a little bit higher on entering the year than, than some other people, but definitely um, Adley Rutschman and Julio Rodriguez were solidly in that conversation on our preseason list. Um, and I think Bobby Wood Jr. is probably the third guy we can talk about here. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a clear cut number one prospect in baseball right now. I, I think you could build a case for, any of those three guys you mentioned, whether it's Rushman, Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt Jr. I yeah, mean, that's and our just for the you know, you were about to say, yeah, that's our order right now. It's Rushman, Rodriguez, and Witt. One, two, yeah. Three. I I still would take Adley Rushman. I think there's more more risk with with catchers um, as far as I mean, they just play fewer games, right? Then than outfielders and, and, and shortstops. So I, just that alone somewhat limits their value. But I, I, I really think Adley Rushman, I don't know how much more you can ask for <laughs> from a catcher on, on both sides of the ball. I, I think he has a chance to be a, a Buster Posey type of 
player, which is pretty lofty praise. I don't talk like that much, but I, I think he deserves it. It's he's a he's he's one of the best hitters in the minor leagues. He has a good swing, both sides of the plate. He he's a really disciplined hitter who controls the strike zone. He has power. He consistently produces at every level. He's, you know, he did it for a long time this year. Uh, or, you know, about half a season, I should say, or a little more than half a season at, at double A. He's continuing to do it at triple A. I, I don't see anything as far as a, a hole in his offensive game that's going to lead him to to hit a wall when he gets to the major league level. I mean, maybe some initial struggle certainly is, is possible. I mean, like Wander Franco wasn't off to a, a blazing start. You know, some guys struggle initially, and it seems like there's a bigger gap now between AAA and, and the big leagues. So, so maybe that happens, um, you know, after the Orioles call him up uh, uh, next year once his service clock has been delayed long enough for them to get an extra year out of him. But um, I just don't, I don't see why it, it wouldn't all continue to, to work for him as, as a hitter when he gets to the major leagues and, and then behind the plate, the reviews are, are just as glowing. I mean, uh, potential plus or, or better defensive catcher blocking, receiving, throwing. Uh, I just think he's, He's a total package, and I love Bobby Witt Jr. and Julio Rodriguez, obviously. But it really sounds like you hate them, to be honest. At this point, Ben, yeah, sounds like you really hate those two. That was the that was the subtext of my <laughs> Adley Rushman comments. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think yeah, I think Julio and and Bobby and those guys could be great players, but the just. The combination of offensive value, defensive value at at a premium position for Adley Rushman, to me, if if I had to pick one of those guys to to start a team or start a farm system with, I'd be going with Adley. All right, I think, like you said, I think you can make a case for all these three. I don't think there's it's a situation where there's like an obvious player. Um, at the pre on our preseason list, I, I had Julio in the number one spot because of uh, some of the questions that you you talked about with just catching in general, um, just the the number of games that that'll limit you to, um, and just because I was really really high on his tool set. I think at this point, just given how Bobby Wood has played, if I had to pick one of these three, I would probably go Bobby, and I was very high on him in 2019. I think me and JJ had a number of conversations where we were like, oh, who would you go with? And I, I pretty consistently sided with Bobby Witt over Adley Rutschman, even knowing that, that Adley was kind of the consensus top talent in that year's class. I have just long been infatuated with his tool set, his ability to impact the game at every single level. Um, he is hitting in AAA at an absurd level. This year, he's got 28 home runs, 25 doubles, 22 stolen bases, while playing shortstop, and I think he's going to be a high-level shortstop. He's got power. He's got speed. He's a really impressive hitter who's two years younger than Adley, um, and it's also worth noting that Julio is the youngest of the group, still 20 years old, hasn't got to AAA yet, but probably could be. Um, but I just think that as, as the most premium position, I guess you could make the argument that Adley 
as a catcher is, is the most premium position on the field. But I think as a shortstop with five tools, legitimate plus tools across the board, I think Bobby Witt Jr., if he, if he lives up to his talent, he's like a franchise player caliber caliber guy. And I think that he has all of the, the skills and the makeup and the work ethic and the bloodlines to kind of tap into everything that he has. He's always been just a very advanced player. And it seems like all of the reviews uh, that we've gotten to this point still kind of have me very, very high on him just outside of performance, just some of the feedback from scouts that we have. I just don't see an area in his game that really scares me, you know, like he does strike out a little bit, but I think when you look at his power production, uh, his speed, he still hits for a fairly high average. I think he's going to do more than enough. It's where you can live with a, a little bit of strikeout um, offensively. So if I had to pick, I would probably go Bobby Witt, but that also, that also probably ties into me just being very high in him out of high school as well. And kind of wanting to, to stick with that. So they they've also pushed him really mm-hmm. aggressively too. I mean, it's been well <laughs> merited in, in mm-hmm. his case, but again, this, yeah, like yeah, rookie ball in 2019, it. missed 2020, started in double A this year where he hit 295, 369, 570, then promoted to triple A where he's already played 37 games and is still hitting well, 290, 341, 613. He had 16 homers in double A and 12 already in triple A. So he has been moved very aggressively. Yeah. I mean, you could say, oh, well, he played at the alternate site and got that in, but it's it's really not, <laughs> really not the same. It's still a pretty aggressive jump for him to go to double a he was really good in spring training too i don't remember who he was playing against at that time if he was if he was actually playing against like big league caliber pitchers but i remember he had just a really impressive spring training yeah yeah he did i think i might still give i mean hopefully this ends up being a you know the debate we have now of like would you take like juan soto or fernando tatis jr um yeah, kinda, I love those debates. Kinda, it's fun. Kind of discussion in a couple years. I think I'd probably still lean Julio Rodriguez over Bobby Witt Jr. It's confirmed. Uh, ben hates Bobby Witt Jr. So, you heard it here on the podcast first. And and let me elaborate on that hatred. So, um, I mean, Bobby, Bobby Witt Jr. obviously has the positional advantage where he can play shortstop. Julio Rodriguez is probably a corner outfielder. I think he has the tools to be a plus defender in a corner outfield, but I do have more conviction in, in Julio Rodriguez's pure hitting ability. Like you said, there's some, there is some swing and miss there with Bobby Witt Jr. I agree with you. I don't think it's that big of a deal, but when we're you know, splitting hairs between, you know, one, two, and three overall on our top 100. Uh, I, I would give Julio Rodriguez the edge as a pure hitter. He's also, like you said, he's younger than Bobby Witt Jr. I think, you know, power, power is probably comparable. Um, but I, I, I think Julio Rodriguez is a chance to be, I mean, he could be contending for a, a batting title. He could, lead the league in home runs one year. Uh, he's just another guy like, like Rushman, right? I think he's just such, such a complete hitter. There's just not many holes that you can poke in his game 
offensively. And then, yeah, he's, he is probably going to play a, a corner outfield spot in, in the big leagues. But I think between, I, I think he moves well for his size. I think he has good defensive instincts and, and he has an outstanding arm. So all the tools are there for him to be uh, a plus defender in a corner outfield spot too. Yeah, they're definitely, if you wound up with any of these players, you'd be excited regardless. So it's a fun top three um, to look at. It's fun to think through who we would, who would rather have. And, and let us know if you guys are listening, if you want to let us know of those three, who you guys prefer, how you'd line them up, definitely send that over to us. I'd be curious to see what the, uh, what the consensus from the listeners are. Maybe we'll do a poll on the tour account. Um, that could be fun. But I think what's also interesting too, is all of these guys, are representing the top three teams on our updated farm system rankings as well. Um, you can see that updated organizational ranking uh, at Baseball America. It's been on the site for a while. I don't remember exactly uh, when it was dropped shortly after the draft, when we added the new draftees, had some of our midseason updates go into effect. But the Mariners are number one. Um, they're up from the preseason rank of number two, so they just have a one-spot bump. The Baltimore Orioles went from number seven to number two, and then the Royals check in at number three moving all the way up from 14. Um, and I think in general, we've just had a lot of, of transition and movement in our organizational rankings, as you would expect. There are a lot of players who have graduated probably more than a typical year uh, this year. Um, I guess, where do you want to start this conversation? Just briefly talking about the farm system rankings. Are there any orgs that jump out to you, Ben, as being really exciting um, or in the opposite direction? Uh, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, like you said, I think the it's it's been a big jump for for the Mariners. Um, it just seems like the reviews we get from you know we talked about Julio Rodriguez. Uh, I think Noel V. Marte is a guy where I just thought coming into the year, like you know, if if he had already come over to the states, I mean, he'd been in the Dominican Summer League just because the Mariners as an organization start all of their players in the DSL. But I, I thought once people had a, a chance to to see him and he had a chance to prove himself some more uh, against, you know, more, more advanced pitching, he, he would move up and, and he has. Um, and then the, you know, the pitching guys like, you know, Kirby and Hancock, and, and there've been some, some injuries there, but it's definitely, definitely a system on the rise right now. Yeah, I feel like it's it's very impressive to rank as the top team when you had a top five player just recently graduate that's not even counting for the ranking at this point. So definitely impressive top group for the Mariners. The Orioles uh, at number two is the highest they've ever ranked in our farm system rankings um, with Adley Rutschman, obviously the top player and the number one overall prospect in baseball. Grayson Rodriguez, Deal Hall, Gunnar Henderson as their top 100 guys at this point. Um, and then... Kansas City, obviously led by Witt. You've got a number of pitchers in their system after some of their recent drafts. Um, but yeah, just the, the ability for those top three teams to revamp. I guess, when do, when do you think these teams are going to start becoming competitive at the big league level? Because they've, they've got a lot of talent that is pretty close to being ready. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look like the Orioles are close right now. Uh, I mean, again, they're number two you can argue them number one but honestly after what they've done the last few years if they weren't number one or two it would be be pretty embarrassing so yeah. 
That's, um, actually, that's a good call. If you're going to do what they're going to do at the major league level, it's got to turn into something. Yeah. And now and maybe, maybe we like have... we say all the time, farm system ranking high at the farm system organizational rankings doesn't really matter. I mean, it's indicative and hopefully it's, it's telling of what's going to happen in the future. Um, but in terms of the success, the, the team feels for that, it, you really have to translate that into major league success to feel good about it. Yeah. And, and usually it is predictive of success. Mm-hmm. If you have an elite farm system, you know, the Royals, uh, you know, the Astros, uh, the, you know, the Dodgers, even like mm-hmm. it's <laughs> the Rays. turn this. Yeah. The, the Red Sox at, at one point. Um, yeah. And, and the Rays too. I mean, that's another team that's, I mean, it, it's impressive to see a team. I mean, the, I guess, you know, the Rays have made a lot of trades obviously, which helps, you know, keep their farm system. They graduated like their top four and they're still top 10 farm, which just speaks to the depth of their system. Yeah. So I, I think them and then also we the Blue Jays. Seven. Yeah, the Blue Jays too to still have a top ten farm system after you know graduating Vlad and Bo and you know Lourdes Guriel and Manoa recently. Biggio. Yeah, Manoa recently. Oh, and then they traded Austin Martin and they traded away Simeon, Simeon Woods Richardson. Richardson. Yeah. It's it's a it's a really good farm system. It it helps that Gabriel Moreno has been phenomenal this year. I mean, the mm-hmm. injuries obviously slowed him down, but the reviews on him from scouts were, I mean, some were putting in that Adley Rushman territory. I don't know that I go that far because <laughs> of everything I just said about Adley Rushman, and I really do like Gabriel Moreno a lot, but he's you know he's he's one of the best catching prospectors one of the best prospects in baseball period he got much better um you know over 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 the last couple of years uh, i think the blue jays have done a really good job with a lot of their their young hitters both in terms of just, uh drafting signing obviously internationally too with with guys like Arelvis martinez and and developing them and and there's a lot of depth too uh both from they're, you know, they're homegrown draft guys and, and the international system is a good layer of, of depth. I mean, Manuel Beltre, a, a young hitter they have in, you know, their, their big international signing from January, uh, you know, when they've spent a lot of money internationally on a guy, whether it's uh, uh, Vlad Jr. Or, or Elvis Martinez or, or more recently now Manuel Beltre, the results look pretty good. <laughs> I think they're, they're one of the better organizations down there in latin america so for them to um you know still be a, a top 10 system in in baseball i think is is a, a pretty strong indicator for for them after graduating all that talent yeah absolutely another another farm system that jumped out to me as just being impressive is boston we talked about them a good bit on this podcast but for them to go from i believe 20 on our preseason rank to number nine I think it's a testament to just their their drafting and the development of their players. They've got a number of hitters at the top of their organization that have been really impressive. Um, we've obviously talked about Nick York, but Tristan Costas has been good. Jaron Duran has been really impressive. And then adding a guy like Marcelo Meyer to that mix, who could be the best player in the 2021 draft. Um, you got to feel good about the, the bats that you have at the top of Boston's group. Uh, and really to go from a bottom third to a top third, um, team in like six months. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Are there other organizations in that bottom third and that, you know, 21 or I'll let you stretch if you want to 20 to 
thirty range do you think are are getting better? Maybe maybe they're underrated. I mean, there's a couple that jump out to me. I mean, I, I don't think the Brewers are underrated right now. We have them in you know we have them at twenty two. Yeah, but I did. I I, I like their draft. I like them getting. I mean, South Frelick is making that look pretty good, right? I that pick. Again, they got him at – that's two drafts in a row where they got a college outfielder that's fairly toolsy that they got at a spot that I really figured or, or I expected the player to be gone and yeah. would have taken him before that spot. I mean, it's it's pretty impressive, I think, what they've done in the middle of the first round. I loved Garrett Mitchell. I think Garrett Mitchell's tool set was more explosive, but I feel a lot more confident in South Frelick as a hitter at the same time, and he's off to a really strong start. Uh, the other yeah. team – the other team that I I like in this range, and I don't, I think the farm system really falls off quickly. And I think you guys and Josh and JJ and Kyle and everyone who's covering prospects for us has done a good job kind of outlining this for readers, but the nationals, I mean, again, like six months ago, their top players in, in their farm, I, I don't think you could have been too excited about. And all of a sudden, the top of their group, let me see who it is um, specifically. Um, yeah, but Caber Ruiz, Cade Cavalli, yeah. Josiah Gray, and Brady House. So a couple of trades, uh, Cavalli just being really impressive. And, and we liked his tool set coming out of the draft, but there was questions of like, how is that going to translate? Because it didn't really in college. And he's been really good. He was a, a player that Matt Eddie identified as, as maybe a guy who's going to take off. And he has... And then adding a guy like Brady House, who we've already talked about as being a, a pretty good value pick or a or a value pick that we liked in the draft. I think the if you just go a year ago and look at the top of their system versus looking at it now, you had to feel a lot better as a Nationals fan. And maybe because of some of the trades you've had to make at the major league level, maybe you don't love that that's the case. Maybe you'd rather have tried to continue stretching out your window, whatever it was at the major league level. But I do think... Um, they've they've taken a big step forward although there's still work to do in terms of depth um behind those guys yeah i think the the other team for me would be the cubs it's it's tough because they only they only have one prospect in their system who is that elite top you know top 50 or, or top 30 overall prospect in baseball with with brendan davis um and then, you know, they have some guy like, you know, Braylon Marquez is tucked into the back of the top 100 right now. Uh, if we update it again, I don't know that he'll be on there. He's like one of those right on the cusp guys. But so it's 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 hard to have like an elite farm system with with that being your only elite guy. But they do have a lot of players who are young at the lower levels there's some depth to it, like almost similar to where maybe the Rangers farm system was a year or, or two years ago. Um, or maybe I'd say a year ago, or you have one guy with, you know, Josh Jung and the, a whole interesting wave of depth of potential breakout guys at the lower levels. I mean, I love Christian Hernandez shortstop, uh, their big international signing from, their their most recent class in in January who who has been our top 100 he's kind of right on that bubble right now Pete Crow Armstrong uh the same way huge fan of of PCA and you know guys like Reggie Preciado who who they've traded for 
uh, from the Padres. They, they have a whole bunch of those guys. Uh, a lot of them will not work out. <laughs> so that's part of the risk of just having a lot of talent that's so congregated at the lower levels. But it's, it's an organization where between all of those young players, and then I imagine they're going to be in a position again where they're just going to be focused on trying to improve the farm system rather than the major league club next year. So I, I think that's an organization that is in the bottom third right now, but I don't, it's not like a bad farm system. And it, it's one I could see jumping into, into the top 10 um, within a year or two years from now. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprising at all. I think that's a good call. They're not a team that I initially like, jumped out and was excited about, but I think you make a lot of good points about why people should be kind of paying attention to them over the next few years. Um, with that, Ben, I think we're going to take another quick break and then we'll be right back to get into your questions. So thanks again, guys, for sticking with us. And we're back again. Thank you guys for sticking with us. We're going to jump into a few questions that you had. We appreciate you guys sending all of your questions. Uh, if you want to in the future, you can send them to future pro pod on Twitter. You can send them to Ben Badler on Twitter or Ben.Badler on Instagram. And you can send them to me on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. So any of those places, um, we're happy to take them. But our first one comes from Garrett Allen, who says, would love a deep dive sometime on scouting catchers and how to evaluate IQ, makeup, presence, et cetera. Um, and so this, this question definitely seems focused on the intangibles of catching and, and not specifically the, the physical tool set of catching. And I, and I like that because I do think that all of that aspect of the game is incredibly important, especially for catchers. And I think for a lot of scouts that maybe bears as much weight as the physical tool set and how they're going to project them moving forward at the position. So Ben, how would you tackle this one? Uh, just what are your thoughts on evaluating catchers in terms of, of IQ makeup presence, et cetera, any of the other intangibles that maybe go along with those traits? That's an area where I generally will try to defer to people who I think are much smarter than me or That's have what much I do every day with every core, topic. <laughs> much more uh, subject matter expertise and core competence in that in that area because there's yeah, like you know, like you're talking about there's so many there's so many things that go into evaluating a catcher. I mean, even just just physically. Right. And it, and it, you know, it's a scale too, from, from what age you're at, it's, it's different when you're evaluating a 16 year old catcher from Venezuela versus somebody who's 23, 24 in A, Right. So there's just so much that goes into it on the physical side before we even get into that. I mean, I, I do, you know, want, ideally to have a catcher who is smart and has, you know, a good baseball IQ. I prefer is, dumb catchers. Yeah. But like, uh, you can have a dumb catcher too. Like sometimes it, <laughs> it, it, it works. So, but yeah, obviously generally you'd rather, you know, have, have somebody who has some intelligence and, and aptitude for the game and uh, can learn and, and understands you know, how to call a game, but, but even then people will disagree about game calling and, and your ideas and philosophies on that will, 
shift and probably evolve over time. So that's, it's not a, as, as static of a, a trade as having a catcher who you're looking for, you know, arm strength, quick release, uh, flexibility, agility, athleticism, good footwork behind the plate. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't profess to be an expert on, on everything. And that's probably one, or I would say certainly one area where I try to defer to people who, uh, you know, are, are smarter than I am in, in this area. I think that's generally good advice. And uh, yeah, I tend to agree with that. I, I do think there is, is some sentiment that, that all of the, these kind of soft skills and intangible skills are weighted more heavily when you're talking about catchers. Cause I do think at least the scouts that I've talked to always, always say that like the work ethic and, and the mentality and the makeup really matters at the position, just because it is such a physical grind and you have to do so much. And I think for, for every hitter, you have to be able to separate your defensive game and what happened on the defensive side of the ball uh, from your hitting, just so you're able to stay consistent and not take your failures or successes to the other side. But it definitely seems like it's especially important for catching. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just echo all the comments that you had. I do think one, one thing is, you know, especially when you're evaluating a catching prospect and, and especially at the amateur level is do they like catching, right? Like there, there are some guys who, who catch maybe because they think it's, it's their best path to pro ball and, and to signing and, and maximizing their, their signing bonus. But I I think especially for a catcher where there's some question marks, if he is going to stay behind the plate or if you're looking at a conversion guy, like you're looking at a, you know, a third baseman or a shortstop who's more of like a thicker guy. I mean, it doesn't really run, but has a good arm. And you're not sure if the bat's going to profile at one of those positions, but if you move him behind the plate, Oh, all right. He's, he's a lot more interesting is yeah. Does, does he want to catch? Cause there's like, we talked about, there's so much that goes into catching beyond just being able to do it for your high school team or your college team yeah and just the physical toll that that position takes that is not even comparable to any other position like yeah you're getting beat up back there all the time it it you know wears down your knees it's yeah I i think i've said this on the podcast before but people who like intentionally go try to catch and enjoy it i think they're something is a little bit wrong with them just a little yeah. bit. You had to be if, kind of, kind of out there. To yeah. That. So if, if there are question marks on, if a guy's going to stick behind the plate or if it's a conversion guy, if he doesn't want to catch, I think that makes it harder to bet on him putting in all of the work necessary to stick behind the plate. All right. Thank you for the question, Garrett. Uh, moving on to SPP from Twitter. Uh, he says this podcast is one of his favorite pods, so we appreciate that. Wondering if you and Ben can touch on how much you weigh minor league park factors when doing prospect evaluations. Thank you. Uh, I'll throw it to you first, Ben, but I reached out to Matt Eddy, who does our minor league park factors, and just got his thoughts, so I can just kind of read over what he told me. Um, but yeah, what are your just your takeaways from that question? How, how do you weight MLB park factors in prospect evaluations? Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a factor. It's not 
something blanket either where you can just apply the same park factor to every hitter like a park factor for you know the the way a park is going to affect Nick Madrigal is going to is not going to be the same as it's going to affect Joey Gallo right like just the the number of balls you're putting in play or the distribution of the the types of batted balls you're you're talking about is going to affect different hitters and with different handedness in in different ways but but yeah especially in in the minor leagues you're you're going to have parks that play very very differently uh you're going to have some in the you know uh, whatever we're calling the Pacific Coast League now, or um, where the ball is, is going to carry a lot more. So you, you keep that in, in consideration, both, both in terms of when you're looking at, at stats and, and when you're trying to evaluate a player alive too, like you, you see balls, you know, get hit out and, you know, and whether you're watching BP or, or you're watching a game, you can get, tricked if you're not aware of the i think of of the of the park that you're this isn't this is a minor league specifically but i think area codes this year versus two years ago is a great example of that if you just graded out the power of players in san diego you would have been you would have got given much higher grades to the power there versus the same hitters in long beach if you were seeing them all for the first time i would imagine because the ball absolutely flew out of the park in san diego and Long Beach is notorious for being really tough to get out of. So just as a quick example for that. Yeah. So you do that. I mean, you can look at home road splits sometimes, but unless it's something extreme, I don't, I don't really like throwing out half of a season's worth of stats for, for a player. I think you're throwing away a lot of uh, data in that instance, but if you, if you see something that's, you know, really glaring in, in a park that skews heavily toward hitters. All right. Well, you keep that in mind, but I I don't think you just throw out all of a hitters home data and just look at his road stats. I I think you're, you're making a mistake if, if you're throwing away that, that volume of, of data and that, that sample of, of performance for, for a hitter or, or a pitcher too. Yeah, I'm just going to read what Matt sent me because, like I said, I threw this question to him because he he does our minor league park factors and he is much more uh, in the know for all of this stuff than I am. Um, he said, I think park factors have value around the margins. The ones I create are not precise enough to have absolute value. That's not the point. He's more interested in estimates and broad truths, and his factors also don't account for left, and, left or right-handedness. Um, and he said, I apply them to evaluations more to boost hitters and pitcher friendly parks. For example, Shay Langliers at Mississippi, Jake Myers at Sugarland, or Ronnie Mauricio at Brooklyn. I'm not as comfortable taking stats away from players. A home run in a hitter friendly park might still be a home run in other parks. We can't say for sure. Um, then he also says park effects tend to be more valuable over larger samples. Think of the proportionality in the following example. Let's say a park boosts home runs by 10%, a player who hits 40 would have his total neutralized to 36, a difference of four, whereas a player who totals 400 home runs in the same park would lose 40 homers by having his total scaled back to 360. You feel the loss of 40 much more than loss of four. So I think those are just generally good points to uh, remember when using them. And I think just the first 
point that park factors have value around the margins is a good one. I don't think any of us um, start out comparing and contrasting players by just sprinting to the park factors, but I do think um, it's worth checking in on it. And, and a guy like Shea Langoliers, uh, for me specifically when doing the Braves list, his numbers just became that much more impressive to me when I realized how much of a, uh, a dampening environment he played in. So thank you for that question. I feel like that's a good one. Uh, our next one comes from USC Gabe on Instagram. This one is directed to Ben. Uh, super soaker to your chest. Does Austin Charles end up on the mound, infield, or outfield in pro ball? Um, and this is a 2024 prospect who I have no information on. Ben, I'm assuming you do. So uh, you can take this one for us. So he's, uh, yeah, so Austin Charles. I posted a video of him on my Instagram page at Ben Badler. He is... It was pretty wild to see because I didn't know he did this um, going in, but I was watching him warm up and he's pitching and then he just takes his glove and switches it from his uh, right hand to his left hand and keeps warming up. And I was like, this is a 15 year old uh, switch pitcher for the 2024 class who is also a switch hitter who plays infield and outfield. So it's basically like a video game character. <laughs> you would. It's like create. Anthony Siegler with additional positional versatility in high school. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild. So, I mean, he's, he's committed to, I believe he's committed to San Diego state. So um, I would love to see him continue to just try to do, to be a, two-way switch pitcher switch hitter it's it's just it's just wild to see a kid who's able to do that i think he's also like six three like he's a pretty big kid uh hopefully at least i, I don't know again he's, he's so young but um it's pretty cool to see hopefully he continues to switch pitch because I think that's the most fun part about uh, about seeing him. So uh, my hope is he, he continues to switch pitch, but I don't know. what. Uh, have, have you seen a switch pitcher live before, Carlos? Yeah, I saw Siegler in high school. He did it. There is a player in the 2022 class, so I'm blanking on his name right now, that's oh, a switch yeah, pitcher. that's right. Um, he, he has a unique name, too. I don't, don't want to butcher it. I'll have to follow up on that one. But yeah, it's actually kind of surprising the number of switch pitchers I've seen because I would think it'd be even more rare than it already is. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not unheard of in the high school space. Uh, and I guess it's not unheard of in the pro space as well with a few guys who have done it. But it's always cool when it happens. Yeah, it's cool to see more people just bending the reality of what we think is is possible, especially at a young age it's like my favorite too is just seeing him warm up because when you like you know when you're pitching in an inning you obviously have to pick a side to throw from before each um hitter so it's not like you're going back and forth in between a batter but just to see him warming up i'll throw four pitches uh right-handed and then he just flips his glove over now i'm going to start throwing left-handed <laughs> right away it's it's just it's yep. pretty mind-bending to mm -hmm. to see that i kind of wish there i 
because the rule now with switch pitchers is what the, the batter has to pick a side to um to hit from and then the pitcher yes goes from there for for the rest of the bat but what if i mean what if like what if you were a switch pitcher and you were facing a left-handed hitter and you had like an okay curveball from the left side but a really good right-handed changeup and you're like you you had like a good like advanced report on the hitter mm-hmm. and you nearly struggled more from from the left side and or, and especially against changeups like could you like <laughs> could you throw like I don't know like could you like mix it up somehow like that would be like you, so you could throw some pitches left-handed in a bat and some pitches right-handed although then you might be tipping which pitch it is just by yeah, you're getting arm. deep into this world here Ben it is <laughs> but I yeah I don't know I'd like to see I'd like to see a pitcher a switch pitcher who could switch who would just switch arms mid at bat yeah, mid it bat, yeah. mix it up. Like, is there a rule if- against doing that if it's a non-switch hitter? Because I know they have the rule for switch hitters, so people don't just go back and forth, and you never have an at bat. That's a good. But is there any I mean, rule that prevents a pitcher from just mixing it up within one at bat? He's the first switch pitcher I've seen alive. So the, I don't know the 2022 the- switch pitcher, his name is uh, Gerangelo Sajinche Sajinti. Oh, I know right. I'm butchering yeah, yeah. your last name, but he's a Stetson commit, and he's pitched. And I don't know if um Edwin. Or- Edwin Arroyo pitch, but he's an ambidextrous thrower. Um, so I'd imagine he could have if he got on the mound. I don't know for sure if he did, um, but I remember that that was the case for him. So there have been a number of ambidextrous throwers from the high school classes in recent years. So um, I think we can jump into our last question. This is from Pro Scouting 101 on Instagram. Who are some 2021 late draftees who are performing greatly so far? Um, this was a, a timely question because, again, a hat tip to Matt Eddy, who is our statistical genius at the, uh, at the office, who's always putting together fun lists. He threw together um, a weighted runs above average list for 2021 draftee bats and for 2021 pitchers. So I can just run down this list for you. There are a number of um, early draftees and after 10 round draftees on this list. We can dive into a few more, but I'll just run through the names for you if you just want to know who some of the better performers are for just August specifically. Now, just a heads up, all of these are small sample size. Um, And even if it wasn't just August, it would still be pretty small sample size. But the hitter list goes Sal Frelick, first rounder to the Brewers, Corey Rozier, 12th round pick from the Mariners, Colin Davis, seventh round pick by the Mariners, Michael Sandel, 10th round pick to the Astros, Tim Tawa, 11th round pick to the D-backs, Luke Waddell, 5th round pick to the Braves, Jackson Glenn, 5th round pick to the Pirates, Colton Kowser, 1st round pick to the Orioles, Cooper Bowman, 4th round pick to the Yankees, and Ben Malgeri, who's an 18th round pick by the Tigers. So that is how the weighted runs above average lines up for 2021 hitters in August. So that is very specific, but I feel like it's also pretty useful because it's, it's fairly difficult to just get a list of 2021 um draftees in baseball reference or fan graphs so maybe that will help you out to identify them um but one of those names that i'm excited about is Corey rosier uh he was a guy who performed in north carolina in a smaller conference not the biggest guy kind of an impact or contact oriented profile from the left-handed side has some center field skills um showed really good plate discipline 
in college and just put, pulling up his, his overall numbers right now, it's only a 23 game sample, but he's hitting 372, 442, 523 with a pair of homers, five doubles, 13 stolen bases. Um, and that's mostly in low A. He had one rookie ball game. So that's a hitter that I like from that group. Ben, are there any bats that jump out? It doesn't necessarily have to be a late round guy. Um, Cause I know some of these guys, we just don't have a ton of scouting info, but for a lot of them, they were BA 500 guys. No, the, 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 the guy I was going to mention was on the pitching side. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. Gordon Graceffo. Yeah. We the... can jump into the pitcher list really quick and then I'll let you go on about sure. Graceffo. Um, this is the top. Same thing runs above average for pitchers in August of 2021 draftees. Um, and that goes Noah Owen. Um, and all of these are right-handed pitchers, so I'll just say their names. Noah Owen, 14th round pick to the White Sox. Alec Jacob, 16th to the Padres. Jimmy Kingsbury, 17th to the Mariners. Gordon Graceffo, 5th to the Cardinals. Dylan Spain, 10th to the Braves. Nathan Burns, 19th to the Angels. Uh, Kevin Copps, 3rd to the Padres. Alaska Abney, which is a fantastic name, 15th to the Indians. Adam Smith, which is a very bland name, 14th to the Padres. And then Sam Bachman, first to the Angels. That is how the order goes for runs above average for 2021 pitchers in August. But go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I was just like, you know, Gordon Graceffo, fifth round pick for the Cardinals this year out of Villanova. Six foot right hander. It's not like a blow you away fastball. A lot of the year it was upper 80s, touching, you know, 91, 92. Um, you know, by the end of the year, he was up to 94 and just throws, he throws a lot of strikes and he's got two secondary pitches with his slider and, and change up that both are average at times. I think the change up can be uh, a plus pitch and at least in flashes and just a very, very polished strike thrower, not coming out of a, a big program in, in Villanova, but the the early results have been really good. I mean, he's a, he's a college right-hander in, in low A, but 19 in the third innings, 28 strikeouts, five walks, buck 40 ERA. The caveat here is, I mean, the, the Cardinals are using him in a way it, – it, it's not even using him like a reliever because he's mostly throwing, you know, one to three innings at a time. So he's not having to maintain his stuff or, or go through a lineup multiple times, but they're also having him throw every four to five days. So it's, it, you have to keep that context in mind, but I think he is, he has solid stuff. And if that ticks up, uh, even better, but he's he's definitely an advanced strike thrower, pretty polished pitchability guy who could move. You know, I, I could see him in double A early next year, would not surprise me at all. So, uh, pretty, pretty intriguing guy coming out of the fifth round for them. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for that, Ben. Hopefully, those were some names that maybe you can look through. I don't know if this was just. For fantasy questions, maybe you're in a deeper league that's looking for some guys that you can maybe pounce on, but those are some early performers. And again, a lot of these samples are very small. I mean, some of these pitchers on this list, just seven innings. So it's hard to know whether you should take away too much right now, but 
That is a list of names for you. And I think those are all the questions we were going to be able to get to today. So thank you guys for sending those along. I think we are solidly in a portion of the schedule where we'll be able to come to you regularly now. I don't, I don't see anything in my schedule in the future that's going to prevent us from, from getting back to the weekly schedule that we did have at one point. It was established. Uh, so hopefully we can get back on that schedule. Ben, um, anything that you have coming up you want to let listeners know about, uh, whether that's just content from you, travel for you, or just stuff on the website? Anything you want to plug? I'm just glad we're able to to end our feud and and get back on the mm-hmm. the podcast again. So we'll be yeah. cranking out some more episodes. Yeah, definitely. We'll try to avoid uh, any uh, internal fighting in the future. Because again, we we get a lot of good feedback from this podcast out at fields, and maybe people are just trying to be nice to me in person, and they don't like it uh, when they're not talking to me. But we really appreciate the feedback, and thank you guys for sticking with us. It obviously is a uh, it's a little easier to follow when it is regular. Uh, but it should be in the future and there's tons going on. Uh, I should be able to get out to see Adley Rutschman in person at some point. He is in Norfolk, so I'm here. So uh, I think just on the website, I think Teddy has um, college recruiting rankings that are going to be coming out at some point. Uh, Both Teddy and Joe have done a lot of college summer league rankings that are on the site right now. I think by the time most of you guys are listening to this, our full Cape list will be out. So definitely check that out. Ben has been killing the underclass coverage. Um, we have our updated 2022 lists out. Um, yeah. And we still have the minor league season going on major league season. Um, we're kind of in the dog days of summer right now, but, um, I'm looking forward to kind of getting back into the groove with all this stuff. So thank you guys for listening for Ben. I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time. Thanks everybody. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.